Hi and welcome back to Cheeky Crypto. My name is Nick and today guys we are joined by two fantastic people. We've got Chris who you'll know from the channel and we've got the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Charles Hoskinson himself. Thank you guys so much for having me on. It's good to see you and I guess we're pre-recorded from warm sunny Colorado. Okay, so we're going to start things off with one of the most sought-after questions. It's a question that has been burning the community for quite some time, and that is, what's the name of your pet donkeys? Ha, Prince and Piper. I have two, and uh, I also have a too many horses, uh, Gus Gus and Mr. Tibbers. <laughs> Fantastic. So there we go. Answered the burning question for the community. Let's actually take a bit of a rewind, though. Let's go back to actually what inspired you to build Cardano in the first place? Well, uh, you know, I think in terms of generations with cryptocurrencies, and I was a little late for the first generation Bitcoin. I kind of came on with the second wave. Uh, so I, I wasn't a core developer or like a really big guy, but, I, you know, I did buy Bitcoin and mine it. And I was around early enough to be on Bitcoin Talk right after Satoshi left. And it was 2011. And I learned a lot. But the problem with Bitcoin is that it, it didn't have any programmability. Uh, and so, uh, for a long time, a lot of us were talking, well, how do you achieve that? And the consensus in 2012 and 2013 was build an overlay protocol on top of Bitcoin because it already has a network effect and there's not a lot of you know, momentum behind getting a, a stable, secure altcoin. At that time, all the altcoins were kind of variants of Bitcoin with some parameters changed like Feathercoin and Litecoin and Namecoin and these types of things. So we tried that. Um, a lot of people did projects like ColorCoins and MasterCoin and so forth. Unfortunately, those projects, while they were innovative and on paper, the, the limitations of Bitcoin prevented them from ever really doing anything meaningful. So it became clear that we needed a, a layer one that would be uh, basically programmable. Like when JavaScript came to the web browser, it would enable all these amazing new things. So when Ethereum came out, it, it kind of satisfied that need and it enabled an entire wave of cool stuff. The metaverse stuff, the NFT stuff, DEXs and DeFi and stable coins and oracles and all these really uh, novel things like sarcophagus for estate planning and rah, rah, rah. The problem is, and this was known even when we were working on Ethereum back in 2014, that Ethereum was like a proof of concept. It kind of introduced this model but the way Ethereum was built, it, it had kind of a shelf life. It can't scale beyond a certain point. And it's not an idealized model for enterprise-grade applications, government-scale applications, or the kinds of things that would have millions to billions of users. So as kind of a hack, what people would do is they would push all the stuff off-chain. And that's what they did with Infura and Alchemy. And the, basically all of Web3 is run on Amazon. That's the, uh, that's the old joke we have. Um, and that would be like an interim solution. But over time, Ethereum would need to upgrade to different protocols. For example, it need to have proof of stake, which is what they're doing right now. Uh, it need to have better programming model. It need to have a lot more theory behind it to have off-chain and on-chain work seamlessly. So I was a big advocate, even when I was there, of, of th doing things a little differently. And the existing team, they decided to move in a very different direction. And I'd argue that the proof of stake model that they have tends towards hyper-centralization. Um, and also just crazy economics. I mean, your stuff is locked for years. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the design decisions didn't make a lot of sense to me. So I created Cardano as, as kind of a, a different opinion on how one goes about building an ecosystem, designing protocols, engaging the academic world, and having evidence uh, of this thing being able to grow to scale 
to have millions to billions of people. So it's kind of a roll up of the best ideas in the industry. So we, we took some, uh, a lot of ideas from Bitcoin, like uh, the UTXO model. I think it's a much better model for on-chain, off-chain. The problem is that it's not really programmable. So we had to figure out how to make it programmable. So we did extended UTXO, which was a lot of work. It took four years to design. We had to invent a completely new way of doing proof of stake, uh, which is great because it's self-custody and you, you have no tokens locked or any of these things. So you believe it or not, you can move your funds at any time and you know you don't have to trust anybody and these types of things. Uh, but we actually found a way to not only implement that and deploy it, but we have over 3,000 state pools now. So it's uh, substantially more decentralized. And we created mechanisms where over time, as the system gets larger, it gets more decentralized, which was a design property that we wanted to have. And then also we thought a lot about interoperability. So what would a sidechain ecosystem look like? Um, how, do, how do you build standards to move identity, value, information between the different chains? Uh, we thought a lot about, you know, how to, thank you. We thought a lot about um, also the smart contract model. How do you get high security smart contracts? As predicted, I remember as early as 2013, a lot of people were saying, well, this whole programming model, the reason why Bitcoin didn't embrace it is it's a security nightmare. You know, uh, you're going to have all these people writing kind of crappy code because most of the people are young and they've never written this type of stuff before. And it's a tricky model. And so the problem is that there's an agency failure where you get paid up front. And then, you know, the users are the ones who lose all the money. So there's yeah. been over $25 billion of DeFi hacks and failures. And you see big protocols like Luna collapse, $40 billion there, it less to about $600 billion in, in market constriction. Uh, so, you know, there was a question, well, how do you write smart contracts in a secure way? Again, there was huge philosophical differences. My view was you need to write them with specifications and functional programming they said, well, accessibility is all that matters and who cares if grandma loses all of her money? So th there's clearly philosophical differences that, that made it impossible to do something like Cardano within the Ethereum framework, and that's okay. You know? So I, I went in 2015 and built um, a great team, and we have 700 people now at IO, and uh, now there's, I think, 15, 16 companies working on, a, on Cardano and a huge ecosystem. We're number one for GitHub commits. We have 3 million people using the product, a uh, thousand plus projects under construction. The Vossel hard fork is happening here in just a few days. And, you know, so it's, uh, we, we can coexist peacefully. We've written almost 150 papers as well, 10,000 plus citations. So we showed you could do peer reviewed research. By the way, it didn't slow us down. We were in market with proof of stake in 2020. Uh, it took Ethereum all the way to 2022 just to get their first version out, but their whole roadmap of merge and splurge and surge or whatever the hell they're calling it now is a, uh, another three to five years out, whereas our roadmap is much further ahead. So the market will kind of decide, but uh, what's been cool about it is that it allows the space to actually see radically different models coexisting and learning from each other. So there's a lot of great innovation on the Ethereum side with things like rollups and a lot of the ZK stuff that they've pushed. They've shown how blockchains can coexist and serve each other, like Polygon to Ethereum and so forth. And these models are really cool and we've learned a lot. Also, what can go wrong? So with Solidity or these imperative languages, all the attack vectors and flaws, you learn an enormous amount from that mm -hmm. and we gain from that. And then on our side, there's like how to do proof of stake properly. I, th I think ultimately Ethereum is going to have to move more in that direction because there's just some bizarre design decisions right now. Casper have never really made any sense to me. And I think the space is starting to realize the consequences of them. I mean, two addresses making 46% of the blocks is pretty nuts mm -hmm. and it's not going to get any better. Sure. You just mentioned the the Vassal hard fork. What should people expect realistically 
from the Vassal hard fork upgrade? So you don't do tr Twitter driven development. And this is, I think the biggest issue in our industry is that people develop for optics instead of just a methodical plan. You know, it's funny, we tell everybody what we're gonna do and then nobody believes us and then we do it and then nobody believes us that we did it. And so uh, years ago we said, okay, for proof of stake, you know, these are the things we're going to do step by step. And we publish all these papers and we go through the peer review process. And now we're turning the papers on and everyone's surprised. Oh my God, they're turning them on. It's the same with the programming model. There's two ways you can do smart contracts. You can start like Ethereum did with a high level of expressiveness and then realize that that's a bad idea because you have a lot of attack vectors and then gradually reduce the expressiveness over time to secure the system. And actually in the very beginning, Bitcoin did that. Bitcoin script was much more powerful and then they discovered very early on that there was all these exploits that could break Bitcoin. So they turned off a ton of stuff. Mm -hmm. So a great example would be the Bitcoin inflation bug, which created billions of Bitcoins out of thin air. And they very quickly patched that and said, we're never going to talk about it again. <laughs> it was like one of those movies where they buried bodies in the desert or something. And they're like, okay, we're just not going to go there. This never happened. We fucked up bad. Uh, so, you know, these things occur. So the other side is to start with minimal expressiveness which is what Bitcoin does today, and then gradually increase the expressiveness so you gain new capabilities. So in September of last year, when Alonzo came out, we introduced the extended UTXO model in Plutus, and that was enough to start the conversation of how does one build a dApp on Cardano. Then with the ecosystem, we worked hand in glove with hundreds of developers on dozens of projects like Sunday Swap and Wing Riders and all these others, we learned an enormous amount. And then that got translated into a standards process called SIPs. And we took a lot of great SIPs, SIP 31, 2, 3, et cetera, et cetera. And basically these added more capabilities to the programming language. So Plutus version two is coming out and a lot of improvements under the hood that basically make it significantly easier to build scalable dApps on Cardano. Uh, so a lot of the incumbents are rewriting their dApps to this new version. And a lot of people that were waiting to launch on Cardano now have the capabilities to do so, like the Jed stablecoin, for example, that's an algorithmic stablecoin and so forth. So you should see a big boost in TVL. Um, you should see also a lot of projects turning on, but it, this is really improving scalability. You know, we made it faster with pipelining so you can do more TPS and also you can better utilize the transaction graph. But then also we made the transactions more efficient. So Ardano, for example, one of the projects launching on Cardano, uh, they showed a 10x improvement, a 10x reduction in transaction cost and size inside the system just by going from version one to version two. And that's kind of the magic of increasing expressiveness. The other thing is you get backwards compatibility because you still support all the legacy features version one. So you don't break any applications. When you go in the other direction where you start maximally expressive and you reduce, you actually have to break apps at some point. Uh, so it just makes more sense to ratchet up over time. And so this is hopefully something that we can do every year through a standards-driven process, working with DAP developers, keep adding more capabilities and functionality and efficiencies, and you just get more uh, bang for your buck over time. The other really cool thing is that this model, UTXO, is really nice for state channels and off-chain transactions, accumulators and roll-ups and these types of things, which is where the industry is going. Everybody's starting to realize that this giant computer in the sky doesn't make a lot of sense. We're going to be doing a lot of offline computation. What matters is whoever does it, you, you're able to verify it was done correctly and you can't be censored. That's what you care about inside the industry. You don't care that it was replicated 45 times by 45 people. You want to prove that no one tampered with it 
it has my privacy guarantees and my accessibility guarantees and so forth. Well, with the UTXO model, you can go on-chain and off-chain very easily, and you can also batch and bundle things very easily. And we have 13-plus years of knowledge from the Bitcoin space with the Lightning Project and other things that kind of demonstrate that. So, you know, Vossel is an enabler of a lot of really cool stuff, and it's a, a labor of love. We put in a huge amount of work into it. We probably spent half a million programming hours, you know, on, on this thing. It's an enormous lift, and it took a lot of work and a lot of collaboration. And, uh, and you know, I'm real proud of it. But, you know, what's cool is it's just a natural upgrade because the hard fork combinator, the way we do upgrades with Cardano, on the 22nd, when it's turned on, it'll just, like, be any other day. It's not this dramatic thing where people are biting their nails and going, oh, God, what do we do? It's just it's just organic. And then suddenly all these dApps start showing up and suddenly, all, you know, all these things start happening. And, you know, you, you, it's just another moment in the history of Cardano. But looking beyond that, uh, it's also a collaborative model where we're getting better at working with the dApps and developers. And now that there's over a thousand projects, the next Vossel, the next major fork will be even better and even better. And that's what you tend to look for is over a three to five year period you know, filter the noise out. How do you iterate and how do you develop? And by every metric, it's looking better. 50 million transactions have already occurred on Cardano. We're typically the top one or three uh, or the top three uh, for transaction volume and by value. Um, we continue to grow by users, social mentions, uh, the most staked cryptocurrency in terms of ratio, like over 70%. So people keep saying bizarre things like ghost chain and no one's doing anything. But then suddenly there's like this huge ecosystem and it's showing that it can upgrade itself in an organized systematic way in an evidence-based way. And also it seems to be future-proofed because everything everybody else in the industry is trying to move towards, we already natively live there as an ecosystem and we're just figuring out how to iterate in that respect. So Charles, do you think there'd be a, a slow, steady sort of increase to, to the number of dApps? I see that there's over 1,000 uh, dApps so far on the ecosystem. I mean, if you go to Cardano Cube, you can see the the list of them. And yeah, there's a lot of great projects. About 40% are in the NFT space. And we have probably about a half dozen good DEXs now that are pretty efficient and they run efficiently. Like go to Sunday or Wing Riders, you know, you get settlement in a matter of seconds or minutes uh, and, you know, reasonable liquidity for the projects. So there's already good infrastructure in that respect. So the really exciting stuff like algorithmic stable coins and peer-to-peer -peer lending and you know, especially in the microfinance world, that's kind of what Vossel is opening up. And that wave will bring a lot of TVL and will bring a lot of really interesting things to the conversation. Uh, so I, I think there'll be kind of a big spike within three to six months post Vossel because there's a lot of people building who are waiting to deploy. And then there's going to be a gradual trickle of new things and update of things. But a lot of that is also contingent on the markets. You know, in a bear market, yeah, people tend to be more conservative and they tend to spend more time polishing things. In a bull market, people just tend to launch lots of stuff, whether it's good or bad or ugly. They just launch because they want to capture as much value. So given that we're in a bear market and uh, a lot of transition is occurring right now, you know, that for everybody, Solana, Polygon, Ethereum, us, you're going to see less overall launching. But that said, there's tons of enthusiasm and a lot of excitement. And, and so it's Pretty cool to see that. And honestly, I mean, if you get 10 or 20 really good dApps with great user experiences and a lot of customer acquisition, that literally could bring tens of millions of people in. So where we're at as an ecosystem, you know, quality over quantity, it makes a lot more sense, especially given the consequences of quantity are all the security problems and a litany of regulatory issues and, and other things that we've seen with Tornado Cash and all this other stuff. 
you know, so uh, where we sit right now, we feel very comfortable and we're pretty much at capacity. Can't grow any faster. Uh, the ecosystem is showing signs of fatigue from, you know, moving too quickly in some cases. Uh, so I, I think uh, Vossel will be quite successful. But then, you know, looking into 2023, 24, 25, the big challenges are governance. So we're having a big transition right now in the ecosystem to a members-based organization where we look more like in a traditional open source project like the Linux kernel or, uh, you know, like any of these things uh, that uh, people have like Apache or, you know, a, a big database projects or, you know, things like Node where, you know, you have governance steering committee, technical steering committee, everything is done through GitHub and so forth. Because, you know, it's all open code and it's under Apache license, but it's not structured in a way for external collaboration to be easy. So usually the collaborators are some of the core companies or DAP developers, but you don't get that organic open source stuff that comes in. That said, we've seen the flowers blooming for some things like that, like TX Pipe and Omigos and these other things that are community driven. Uh, that are are pretty cool, but there needs to be more support and there needs to be more investment there. So post Vossel, there's kind of some people working on Plutus and making it better and faster and people working on consensus and making it better and faster and a lot of cleanup that's occurring. But then there's also a humongous effort in getting a members-based organization enabled and turned on so that we can collectively harness the tens of thousands of developers that are in the ecosystem and get them building into the system and speeding up uh, a lot of these things and also sharp, removing a lot of the rough edges. You know, the interfaces need to be cleaned up. DB sync needs to be cleaned up. Uh, you know, we need to make sure that exchanges have an easier time listing Cardano native assets. There's just tons of to do's and there's never enough time to do all of it, but there's definitely a, a demand for it. But the community's ready. You know, we had actually, I wanted to push out Voss a little sooner. And then the stakeful operators said, nah, we're not going to upgrade. We want to test it ourselves. So they kind of showed who's in charge of, uh, of Cardano. And that's a good thing. You know, it shows yeah. you the amount of decentralization we've achieved where there are tons of checks and balances and layers inside the system. Yet we still can meaningfully come together and do massive upgrades on a yearly basis. So I have about a dozen questions on the back of that one, um, but I'm going to probably wait until later into the, the interview to kind of see which ones are more important and we'll just dive into those. But you did mention a couple of things that are quite important, at least to, to kind of how I operate within the crypto space. So you mentioned bull markets, you mentioned bear markets, and you mentioned about how projects um, generally kind of rush in uh, during bullish times, you know, rush the product to market uh, to capture as much of that value. Um, and this is really where I feel that, that Cardano has a much better approach to it, the more academic peer-reviewed approach. And Cardano tends to get the wrong end of the stick, right? You get lots of things from Ghost Chain and the other kind of joke that they say, which is Cardellano. Cardellano, yeah. <laughs> right. And Ghost it makes Chain, Cardellano, shitcoin. I mean, yeah, they, they it makes very it little yeah. sense. Like logically thinking, you know, you want to take the time to make sure you actually deliver something that works right out of the box. Um, whereas you've seen time and time again, just products being rushed to the market and then oh crap we've lost you know x amount of millions or billions um from hacks and things like that so i think you're doing the right thing by taking that approach you know the methodical and uh, logical approach peer-reviewed approach i think that's the right way to go and just uh, damn the haters if you will you know <laughs> yeah if you keep gaining users you know so the argument of of move fast and break things is if you don't move fast you're going to lose your users because they're an unstable element and you have to get exponential growth but guys, I mean, if we wake up and let's say five years from now, Cardano's at 15 million people, if we keep growing at the rate that we're growing, is that a failure? 
it'll be 15 million people with tens of thousands of dApps and tens of billions of dollars of transaction volume and providing real use and utility. And for those 15 million people, very transformative. I mean, we have products, for example, that we're working with partners on like Possessia, which just raised $11 million and they're based in Kenya. And they have an amazing microfinance product where they're able to uh, service loans uh, in, uh, in all throughout East Africa, uh, 30 to 90 day loans, which have an NPL rate of 2% and non-performing loan rate. Uh, normally it's 40% for microfinance. So four out of 10 loans tend to fail or underperform. So meaning people are very late for payments with microfinance in that area. And she's getting 2%. So it's 20 times better than the national average in Kenya for NPL. And we can build a, as a community, a peer to peer lending marketplace, integrate that into wallets like Lace and actually lend stable coins to people in Kenya on a 30 to 90 day basis at reasonable returns. You see, so once that gets going and you have a circular multi-billion dollar economy, who cares if you're at 3 million or 15 million users? Because yeah. for those people who are using the system, it's great. The other thing is that you know the system is built correctly. It's going to be around. It's also and, a case of um, the type of user, right? Because you don't really yeah. want just speculative investors. That's not really a user that you're going to really want in your ecosystem necessarily. It's going to be actually end users that you want for the dApps, right? Yeah. But 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 just a caveat because they'll say, "Oh, Charles doesn't care about user acquisition because everybody's so dishonest." <laughs> I, I I do believe that you grow exponentially. I mean, just look at our growth in 2021; it was like a six x in terms of people. So during bull markets, you gain a huge customer acquisition. During bear markets, what you need to do is just hold on to your community and and turtle up and stabilize. And you know, it's build a bear; you just build. And so it's a building time now, and it's really the time to talk about governance. It's time to talk about policies and procedures and people, and it's time to talk about good technology and good business models and get those things integrated in and plant those seeds so that the next bull market, you can get another 6X or 10X in terms of community growth, and you can go from 3 million to 15 million or 20 million users and see another wave of dApps. But, you know, the cycles, I've been through seven bull bear markets uh, since I've joined the cryptocurrency space. Uh, and th this is no different, you know, you know it, it's, it, it could last 18 months, it could last two years, it could end at the end of the year, who knows, it's any given Sunday. I mean, if America passes the Financial Innovation Act, we'd probably see a mega bull market because a huge amount of institutional money would enter and also all the regulatory risk and crypto would disappear. So it'd be a big land grab. Um, if a blue wave happens instead of a red wave at the end of this year and, and uh, you know, people like Gensler and Powered, we could see a mega bear market happen mm -hmm. as a, a massive amount of litigation occurs. And, you know, all these poor entrepreneurs just basically get put out of business by the heavy hand of government. So who the hell knows? You know, it's uh, there are macro factors that are well outside of my control and in the control of the industry in general. We're, we're just the recipient of these these trends. Uh, we couldn't have predicted COVID, for example. You know, we couldn't have predicted which way elections would go and where regulation would go in this respect. Uh, the collapse of Luna was a black swan event. Now, a lot of us in the industry have been around for a while. We were screaming, uh, this is a Ponzi, uh, same for Celsius. The problem is that, uh, you know, people like the returns. Mm -hmm. And when those returns are there, it's like, those are the smartest guys in the world. Let's get tattoos <laughs> and have some fun, you know, like certain people. Uh, but when, you know, it falls apart, everybody goes into a, a finger pointing. Uh, and so, you know, we saw $600 billion of value contract as a result of one event, the, uh, the collapse of, uh, of Luna. You know, so it's just, it's, it's, it, it's one of the things where you just don't pay attention to it.
and you, you focus on fundamentals and you, and you say, look, at the end of the day, we need to build a decentralized brain. That's where peer review comes in because you get universities all around the world every year, graduate students, professors, and postdocs innovating. And it's culturally neutral, linguistically neutral. There's people in Japan, people in Africa, people in Europe, people in the United States, and they're all writing papers. And make sure that whatever they write, it's practical and you can integrate it. So that 20 years from now, you still have innovation going on because there's always going to be universities. There's always going to be that environment. You have to build decentralized governance so all the people you have produce, not just consume. They don't sit passively on Twitter saying, when moon, they're picking up a shovel and they're doing stuff. So then you have the largest army in the world to upgrade and enhance your ecosystem. That's what made Bitcoin great. Uh, and it worked very well. And then you have to have good bets on your technology projection. So you look at your consensus algorithm, you say, do you see a path to convert this technology to scale to a system with a billion users and still be decentralized and have predictable cost? Do you see a path for your programming model to interact with dozens or thousands of blockchains and layer two solutions and billions of transactions occurring on a daily basis? Do you see a path of how these things happen? UTXO is maximally paralyzable and you can reuse things a lot and it's built for sharding at its core. And it makes it very easy to install layer twos. And we have tons of proof points like the Hydra project and what we're doing with reference scripts and these types of things. So yeah, we see the paths there. And people tend to complain, well, that might take years. It's gonna take three to five years for Vitalik to finish the F2 vision. And this is yeah. after seven years just to get to proof of stake. No matter who you are, how big you are, how much money you have, Given the scale and nature of these things, it takes time to get there. But if you can see the path, you have the community, you have the brain, and you don't lose users as you're walking along, you will get there at the uh, at the end of the rainbow, and uh, you'll be able to provide high utility for everybody. Okay, so you mentioned Lace, the Light Wallet in there. Is that something that you're really excited for um, when it comes to the future of Cardano? Mm -hmm. Well, Lace is so cool because it's, it, it, it's like, everything we ever wanted in a cryptocurrency wallet platform. It's not just a wallet, it's really a well thought out ecosystem where you can plug lots of things in and it's almost like the Windows or the Android of the cryptocurrency space where it's a foundation to build stuff on top of. So you have core capabilities. So identity is built into core. So uh, Prism, Atala Prism is really getting deeply integrated into it. So you have an identity driven wallet which translates to things like human uh, readable addresses. So you send to a name like Cheeky Crypto instead of sending it to an address. You also can get a lot more privacy and you can build compliance solutions in like AML KYC when you want to seamlessly go from a regulated to an unregulated environment. Well, let's say, for example, you want to build a hook to connect into an exchange. Wouldn't it be cool that you can just have one-click account creation for an exchange and you don't have to go through compliance or any of these types of things? There's an example of just things you can do when you have identity at a core and you can use it as a consumer where and when you want. Then you have a lot of great wallet capabilities. So you have best-in-class privacy, best-in-class multi-sig, best-in-class accounting. But then also you can put a DAP store into it. So you can start having a conversation of what is the Google Play or the iOS app store of the ecosystem. And you can start talking about how do you curate that in a decentralized way. How we curate things right now is Bob over there has to sit and think about it and say, is this a good app or a bad app? Well, what if we had a situation where uh, you can self-certify? So if you specify it and you, you do all this stuff, you can create a proof object that you can associate with a DAP and register it on chain. And then you just create two app stores, a red zone and, uh, and a green zone. 
So the red zone is everything that's registered. You don't know anything about it. it could be a scam, whatever. And the green zone is certified software, meaning that you've checked and made sure it's not a Ponzi scheme or all these other things. And the user can visually see the difference between the two. So you don't have any censorship because anybody can deploy. Um, but at the same time, you have some curation, but it's done through standards-driven process. So, you know, that's another thing we're introducing is this completely new model for how to do adapt curation, which is decentralized but safe uh, for the user. And then a voting center. So, you know, you'll be able to participate in the governance of the system and vote in elections and uh, vote on treasury distributions, not just for Cardano, but made accessible eventually for all the dApps on Cardano. Because every one of these things want to build a centralized infrastructure. They have a governance problem. They need a voting system. They need a voting center and so forth. Then you could have modules that people can plug into third parties, like a lending center, for example, if Possession wants to do that, a DEX. If Sunday or Wing Riders or Muesli or MinSwap want to do that or something like that, and just it's there and they can just plug in because it's a platform in that respect. And what's really cool is then you can start talking about next generation technology. So we have these whole blockchains like Mina and Cello, and their whole shtick is we want to be constant size and light wallet experience with full node security. Well, Mithril does that for us, and we'll have version one of that available before the end of the year which means we can plug that in. And that means Lace will be the first wallet on market that is as if it was a full node, but it has a light client experience. So you, when you get a transaction, you get an asset, you get something, you're able to check it just like you would if you had a full node, check it through the, the Mithril system. It's just something we can add in. And then all the interoperability, the way we're designing Lace, we're looking at a lot of technology to make it similar to what Coinbase does with Rosetta and Ledger does with Ledger Live, where third parties can plug their stuff in, and then that means it supports it. So eventually, Lace will be a Bitcoin wallet and an Ethereum wallet and be able to support even the, the other th uh, third-generation competitors like uh, Solana and Polkadot and Tezos. And that means that Cardano dApps can be cross-chain, you know, and assets can freely move between these things. Because why should we all fight? Why should we all just you know, live in little silos and throw hand grenades. Let's build interoperability and let people freely move identity, assets, information, customers between different systems and serve each other. And then so we get far less adversarial in that respect. So we really thought about this. We, we took eight years of experience of building wallets, talking to wallet people, watching the industry evolve. And we said, how can we build a platform that five years, 10 years from now, it works on a cell phone, it works in your browser, it's very lightweight, there's no load times, it's just there, but it's super secure and it has escalation for the demands of future wallets, like what VWrite will require uh, for KYC AML travel rule, uh, for estate planning, for like if you die, what happens to your crypto, you can have an obvious path there. For human readable addresses, easier account recovery, being able to move from a self-custody to a custodial wallet and back, where and when that makes sense. And then also yield products too. So build modules so that if you want to take your asset and put it, there's centers that people can build. They click a button and they're there. Also to improve the staking experience. For Cardano alone, you know we have one of the best staking experiences right now, which is why over 70% of ADA is staked. Well, one of the things we're moving towards are what are called delegation portfolios. So right now staking is per wallet. So one wallet, one pool. So you have to create multiple wallets if you want to split it up. It's a manual cumbersome process. So what if one wallet can go to N pools, as many pools as you want? Then you can talk about staking portfolios. So you can mix small pools and large pools, charity pools, uh, socially beneficial pools, uh, you know, all kinds of things together like you would a portfolio. And then you delegate to the entire thing. And so you can have recommended portfolios. People can mix and match them and share them. 
So charities can have a recommended portfolio, all the things. So that'll come and the wallet, and then it'll just be a beautiful thing in the user experience. That creates more distribution of ADA, which means the small stake pool operators actually get um, uh, more delegation at the end of the day. So it promotes decentralization inside the system. So these are all things you can do when you have a great platform and built on web technologies. We designed uh, Lace with TypeScript. You know, we used a lot of standard stuff and it's got a very aggressive team and they're moving super quickly and they have fast release cycles. So you don't have to rely too much on this very aggressive Haskell backend, which is incredibly secure and reliable, but it's really built for enterprises and for resiliency. It's not built for fast movement, whereas TypeScript is built for fast movement. So we, we segregated the teams in that respect and we uh, spun them up and we built it out. And it's just, just been a joy working on that project. There's been a lot of challenges we've had to overcome and standards we've had to do. Like we had to create a metadata standard for DAP registration for the DAP store and get that on chain. You know, we had to develop DAP certification standards. We had to think a lot about how will a wallet talk to a DAP and write a SIP for that. So it's been a huge engineering challenge of coordination. But in the process of doing that, it's actually cleaned up a lot of the rough edges of integrating with Cardano. Uh, that people have historically had. So it's been a very worthwhile program to uh, to push out. So Charles, something you might not be aware of is Nick and myself actually run our own NFT project on the Cardano ecosystem called Cheekyverse. So big partnership announcement that I wanted to, to push out to, to our community is that we've just partnered with Cornucopius. Now this has taken about 12 months. We've been working on a in-game asset for Cornucopius um, you know, as a part of the, the, the announcement to, to do a joint NFT drop. Now, um, our project primarily is to, to make avatar clothing for the metaverse and play to earn games, but also have a club in the metaverse where regular people can network with you know, individuals like yourself, uh, other CEOs, prominent people within the crypto space, they wouldn't normally get to talk to from their comfort of their own home. What what are your thoughts on Metaverse? You know, so Metaverse is really cool. And there's some great books that have recently come out about it. And, uh, you know, the Metaverse in general is just a natural extension of, of how do we uh, digitalize the physical and also create a path to physicalize the digital and it's a land grab right now. So just like uh, web addresses, you know, domains were real estate in web one, web two. Now we have, uh, you know, now we have uh, land in the metaverse as, you know, the spatial web as the, uh, the new web domain. Uh, and that's real estate as well. And this concept that, you know, I can have an avatar and that avatar can have a personality and have agency and I can do things in the metaverse that I can't do in real life. Uh, it's underexplored, but there's definitely a demand when you look at MMOs and other things and how, how successful they've been in the gaming industry over the last 20 years. I think the key here is that you have to make the hard stuff easy and then let people innovate. Because if you're a metaverse developer, you care about your, your game world, your story, your lore, you care about your relationships, you care about the social elements. You shouldn't care so much about how do I be civil resistant and get rid of bots. Uh, you shouldn't care so much of how do I create tokens and account all those things and have an in-game economy and how do I create digital scarcity that should be a collection of solved pra best practices just like when you want to build graphics you shouldn't have to worry god how do I build a graphics engine I just go and get Unreal 5 or mm -hmm. Unity 
and that's a middleware provider and it has a lot of answers and then you can focus on the creative stuff of the taste touch and feel of your game world so one of our hopes is with lace in particular is to be a great platform with the dap store for metaverses where it has an identity center and you can use that to have unique identified players so you can differentiate bots from real people we That'd can even cool. develop a proof of human and these types of things, uh, which is super useful for games. Um, it also has the wallet and you card on native assets. You can create anything you want. So it's much easier to build an in-game economy and have verified NFTs for game items and represent that. And for those to be traded through platforms like JPEG store or other things like that. So all those things can be done. And, and that means the game developer can then focus much more on what is their experience there. Now, the other cool thing is that if you have a really strong identity center, you also get secure communication. You can get uh, perfect forward secrecy. You can get uh, disappearing messages. You can get all kinds of things. And also you can create situations where you can prove things about yourself without necessarily revealing yourself. So when you think about the development of a social web around the metaverse of how do I have safe interactions? You know, how do I, you know, engage with people uh, or I engage with groups that I, I care to like, metaverse for kids how do i make sure that all the people there are actually kids and not mm. you know 40 year old bald pedophiles you know sitting in their basement mm. you know i that's a very real concern that mm. parents have so if you have a good identity stack you actually can solve a lot of those problems and you can create really cool in-game economies and so forth the other thing is you want to have a two-way relationship where you, it's not just the game developer but it's the players who should be able to build the game world ultimately and make that game world fun so you need good tools for players to be able to issue their own NFTs, for players to create their own real estate, to extend the game world and so forth. So this is why Web3 works so well with that demand, because in a lot of cases, these are platforms that people build on and they're open source and accessible, and they don't have a central company that owns and controls all of that. So for example, we're building a game called Crypto Bison. If we construct it correctly, the game world artifacts, the bison that create music, we would like to allow that to be portable into other metaverses. So you could take a crypto bison and put it in Cornucopius or Drunken Dragons or another metaverse and actually control it as an avatar. And the representation would be different. And we have no control over that. We don't give permission to Cornucopius or something to do that. The player owns the asset and they can move it from one world to another world seamlessly if you have the right infrastructure in that respect. So this is going to be a, a really fun thing to explore in 2023. And it's just another thing that on my desk. Uh, I got four companies and I'm kind of at capacity right now, but uh, I, I, I would love to explore it uh, indirectly or, or directly and, and see what we can do and build. Yeah, that sounds amazing. You're going to have to join us in the metaverse, in the club, Charles, when we start to do some networking events. It would just be amazing. Okay, I just want to kind of rewind a little bit, just specifically uh, around lace you actually mentioned a few things that were super interesting the first uh, was around staking obviously being able to delegate to multiple pools i think that's incredibly useful um but also i want to kind of get your thoughts on ispos we obviously saw a lot uh, happen during 2021 uh, with ispos being introduced into the cardano ecosystem and i want to get your thoughts around ispos centralization decentralization and all of those kind of thoughts well if they're done correctly um and they have the right setup i don't think they disrupt anything uh so you know what there needs to happen is some sort of layer forms where instead of you do an ispo with the project running the pools they just get certain pools to agree to participate in that uh, and then small stake pool operators can get lots of delegation uh and then after the event is over uh you know they split up the profits 
And so there's got to be a service layer. So if that's done right, it doesn't centralize anything because you're just reusing the incumbent group of, of SPOs. The problem is that if it's if it's vertically integrated and they keep the delegation after the ISPO, then it centralizes the network around a collection of multi-pools. And that's not so good. So we have thought a little bit about it. And what would be cool is to develop a improved ISPO model. And actually, uh, one of the things that we've been looking at is uh, is contingent staking. So there it solves some regulatory problems, but also it could make a much more sophisticated delegation setup where as an SPO at the moment, if someone's delegating to you, you have no control over that. So Bob can delegate to you and you're like, okay, whatever. But what if, uh, you know, Jim and he lives in Iran or North Korea delegates to you? So, you know, suddenly that's a little worse, you know, and so you can't really control that. So it would be really cool if you could register a pool where a delegation transaction requires a multi-sig. So a signature from that person, it gets sent to you through a pub sub channel, and then you have to sign in a state pool operator to initiate the transaction to run. Now, the advantage there is that you could request KYC, or you can embed arbitrary delegation logic into it, and that can work on both sides. So they can do a contingent transaction that says, I'm only going to delegate to you if uh, you know the, the funds do X, Y, and Z, or it goes to this particular pool and this pool and there's this payout scheme or something like that. And all of that can be reconciled off chain. Now in practice, this is good for the ISPO because you can uh, apply a regulatory regime. Like you could say, I need an identity on the, on the delegation payload to verify you're not a US citizen, for example, or these types of things. So it solves a lot of the compliance problems, but then you also can put all kinds of things for distribution terms and so forth. So uh, we'll write a SIP at some point for how to do contingent staking and contingent delegation. And then probably that'll be reflected as a ledger rule update where we actually have a new type of delegation certificate. So you can create a new type of pool, a contingent stake pool as opposed to a pool and rotate to that. And then you can put any type of regime that you want on top of it. The other technology that I think needs to be implemented is Conclave. Now Conclave is a mechanism to do a, a co-op pool. So the problem with SPOs is your economy of scale at any given time, and you have to have a certain amount of ADA in pledge to be able to be competitive. Well, what if you could get 12 or 15 small pools to merge together and run a federated pool? So no one actor controls that. So we actually wrote a protocol for that called Conclave on how to do that. And then we published that paper about a year and a half ago, two years ago. We just haven't had time to implement it yet, but it doesn't require protocol changes. It can be done all through cryptography. So I think between contingent staking and conclave, those two things together, you have everything you functionally need to be able to build uh, a, a, a ISPO layer inside the system that doesn't result in centralization when people use the distribution. But actually, it's a really good way, if you think about it, of doing a token distribution because it's a try before you buy. There's no va upfront value transfer. It's a community building process. Uh, and it's a, and you also get a lot of cryptographic information about people, so you can use that as a channel to do a distribution of a token through an airdrop or you know something else. So that's great, you know, and it's just a great, clever reuse of uh, Cardano's consensus mechanism without dam necessarily damaging security of the system. But if it it's used the wrong way, it can centralize, and so we just have to clean that up. But th and that's what I was talking about having a members-based organization. Because as an estate pool, this is an example of something you guys can talk about, and it can become a roadmap priority for Cardano. Because right now, I'm being told by the community, better, faster, cheaper, and more dApps. <laughs> okay, well, that means there's a huge amount of work on pipelining and input endorsers and scalability, and there's a huge amount of work on Plutus, which is reflected mm -hmm. in Vossel. 
But if there were other constituencies saying, well, that's important, but it's really important to be more decentralized. It's really important to have uh, solve the ISPO problem. Well, I have protocols for that. To be fair, the ISPO model within Cardano over the last few months has evolved quite a bit. We see a lot more collaboration between pools and stake pool offerings. Um, so it's actually really quite encouraging to see the, pay, uh, the space evolving them the way that it is. Um, Chris, anything else that you want to add? Yeah, being able to delegate to multiple pools, just like you, you said, would be amazing, right? And uh, something that I've really wanted to, to do myself on Cardano, we do it on other you know, ecosystems like Harmony, for example, but I'd, I'd love to be able to do it on Cardano without the MIGMA role of having to set up additional wallets. So yeah, really excited about that. Yeah, because you know things like Conclave plus that means that you get a lot more representation of economically sustainable small snake pool operators yeah. and then also you get more distribution of ada you know and these two things together i think um are just going to be dramatic it means k can be increased uh, from 500 to 1000 that's and, the next and question also, i was going to ask you <laughs> yeah you, you know you, you could but it's not in practice really going to change the uh, the competitiveness at the moment because of the way that staking is done so you need that you need to have those types of things with it and then i think that's very good the other thing is the way that we've designed input endorsers we had a huge huge work effort that we did in california uh between crypto and uh, the opening of our stanford lab really i i think it's going to decentralize the network tremendously we can change a lot of the economics of stake pools uh, and make it so that you can have thousands more inside the system and they still are, are reasonably profitable. So we have some SIPs that we're writing right now that we're gonna probably have available for the community to review uh, at the uh, November Cardano Summit that will discuss some of these intricacies, but it's gonna be really exciting, I think. And it's the yeah. last mile of getting a truly distributed system. And the throughput increase is phenomenal. I, I, I'm not gonna share numbers now because we're still doing benchmarking, but it's tremendously impressive because at the end of the day, per block, only about 0.25% of uh, Cardano's compute time, uh, Cardano's block time is de dedicated to script execution and compute. With input endorsers, it's asynchronous, so that means you can spend all of that time with some group doing compute. Mm -hmm. So it's an exponential return in terms of the amount of scripts you can execute and the throughput you have, and you go from a consensus-limited system to a network-limited system. So whatever the speed of the network is, that's your TPS rate, and that gets faster over time. So you, you, it's really a phenomenal protocol design, but it requires a lot of careful thought about extended UTXO, off-chain stuff with Mithril, and then it does require heavy changes in the network and, and ledger uh, protocol because you go from a, a single shard to a sharded protocol effectively. So uh, you can't talk about staking and future staking and decentralization without also talking about your scaling model. Because however you implement your scaling model, it's either going to decentralize and distribute the system or it'll radically centralize the system around some shard maintainers and uh, you end up having only four or five people do it. Now, I'm a big prove it, don't say it kind of guy. So another big announcement um, is that in November, we're going to talk about the Edinburgh Decentralization Index. So there we're working with the University of Edinburgh and setting up a lab that's going to start measuring the level of decentralization of all cryptocurrencies, all major cryptocurrencies through objective uh, metrics. So it's almost like, uh, you know, like a, a, the, a consumer index or some scoring that you have, or you know, like a performance score, like 3D marks, you know, you have stuff where you can look at a number and you get a sense more is better. So uh, the first cryptocurrency we'll measure is Bitcoin as a reference. And then we can take a look at, well, where does Ethereum set? now that it's in proof of stake. Where does Cardano sit? Where does Solana sit? And a university is doing this, you know, and it's an objective standard 
that we're coming up with. So there's some papers coming out explaining how to do it. And there's a dedicated team that works for the university that's going to start doing this. And, you know, wherever we fall, we fall. Wherever Ethereum falls, they fall. But then we at least have an objective milestone that people can talk about on YouTube and other places. And then that, that can be a steer for the members-based organization, the open source program, of saying, how do we do better? And when we look at trade-offs and protocols, like when you go from this protocol to this protocol, you gain a lot more TPS, perhaps. Hmm. But what are you giving up? Are you, you know, lowering your decentralization index or increasing it? So you have a more nuanced conversation in, uh, in, in order to compare protocols with each other. Okay, so just going back a little bit, you're talking about Lace, you're talking about interoperability, and you mentioned a few other cryptocurrencies in, in that kind of sense of making things interoperable. You mentioned Bitcoin, which is a bit of a no-brainer, but you also mentioned things like Polkadot, Algorand, etc. What's your thoughts on uh, these other cryptocurrencies? You know, Polkadot, Tezos, Algorand, Avalanche, all these things, they're perfectly reasonable ecosystems and people, and they have strong followings and lots of money and uh, passion and excitement. And we have gotten so caught up in the competitiveness of things that we fail to recognize that at the end of the day, these are just people. And believe it or not, there's at least one person in the world that holds Ada, Te uh, Tezis, uh, Algorand, and we pretty much own all of them i think <laughs> yeah there's at least one person that uh, that's a member of all of those sets mm. okay we're not pairwise disjoint so what does that mean it means that you have to do a much better job as an ecosystem of interoperability and that's one of the third pillars of the third generation we keep saying scalability and governance but god we say interoperability as well it matters it's something you have to think about so if you through a platform can make it very easy for people to hold it all in one place that they control and move seamlessly and consume seamlessly between those ecosystems, then what we do is we start viewing them not as competitors, but as potential revenue streams and uh, utility providers, because these things are capable of doing a lot more stuff together. You know, there's stuff we're focused on as an ecosystem. There's stuff Polkadot's focused on as an ecosystem. Why should it be that we have to replicate everything and they have to replicate everything and then we have to make the case we're better? Why couldn't it be that if they have something that's better, we use it? If we have something that's better, they use that and we're trading with each other. And effectively, we create collective wealth because then we can specialize more in certain areas. So I think that's the way the space needs to move. And my hope is through LACE, we can we can achieve that. We've also set up alliances like the UTXO Alliance and say, hey, anybody who's UTXO based, we should all be in the same boat. Now, in practice, I think this will work in the midterm, meaning two, three years, uh, it, people will do it because it just makes sense and it'll remove a lot of the stress of cooperation. In principle, the only odd man out will probably be Bitcoin. That ecosystem has zero interest in working with anyone and they don't even acknowledge we exist. It's Bitcoin and scam. Those are the two options you yeah, have. Yeah, there was a quote more. the other day, wasn't there? I'll figure out what it was. Um, but yeah, it was it was very much every other shit coin, I think, was the <laughs> the one that was thrown yeah. out there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, you know, that's the only that's the odd man out, which is really sad. And, you know, actually, the problem that Bitcoin has, guys, is that the value proposition is the amount of money and effort required to construct a Bitcoin. But once the Bitcoin is constructed and you have assurances that it's finite, you can run it on any other network. So let's as a thought experiment, Bitcoin could be shut down tomorrow but you would still have Bitcoin in circulation. What you do is go and send it to Cardano or Ethereum and wrap it, and then people would use it as a currency and would trade forever. Uh, and it still has an equal value because all the time, effort, money required to construct them. 
So why does Bitcoin also need to run its own network and payment system and so forth? It's kind of like thinking like gold. Why would you, after you've extracted all the gold out of the mine, still need to turn on the mine and have the, all the employees show up and do this entire yeah. thing? You don't. You shut down the gold mine. So similarly, why would you need to still run the Bitcoin protocol after uh, after they've mined all, all, all uh, the majority of them? You could just move them to other networks and then suddenly they exist with all the capabilities of that network. You can have contingent settlement. You can have smart contracts. You can... You collateralize stable coins with them you can do all that stuff and it's still the same instrument because it's backed one-to-one -one and it the custody's done on a blockchain solution and so forth you know <laughs> so uh so that's the danger bitcoin has is that if the underlying network doesn't upgrade the users of the system can leave the system and take the value that they've constructed to another system and run with it. And I, I don't think they fully understand that. I think that they live in this bizarre world where everything is a scam. So obviously there's nothing there and nothing runs. Um, and by the way, there's a big target on their back because of the energy consumption. I just read the White House report that came out. Cardano was mentioned five times as an example of a good proof of stake. And, uh, and, and they showed how little energy we consume. But then they said in the report on page seven, that uh, the EPA and the uh, Department of Energy needs to work with Bitcoin miners. And if uh, they can't come up with a solution, that the White House should consider using executive order to ban mining. So, yeah. you know, all these environmental justice people, they they got a big, big red target on the, uh, on the back of, of mining because they think it's just a waste. So they, they look at bigger target now because of ethereum yeah. as well right <laughs> exactly yeah. you know when ethereum switched over the merge as bad as uh, as casper is vitalik is absolutely right when he said that 0.2 percent of the mm. worldwide energy consumption was shut off uh, was no longer necessary when they switched they reduced the energy consumption of ethereum by 99.5 percent going from proof of work to proof of stake mm. so they saved 0.2% of all the energy of the world just by doing that. That's not a small number. Like global scale energy reduction, man. It's yeah, like turning the lights off in a giant room or something like that. So uh, so it's so it's hard to, to show that working and for Bitcoin just to rest on its laurels. And that's going to be a big challenge for them, I think. Okay, so talking about the Vazil upgrade that is due to happen uh, actually tomorrow at the point of this video going out, um, you know, talking about scalability and all those wonderful things that come with it, you've spoken a bit about Mithril. Do you think it's worth maybe for anyone who doesn't know, just talking a little bit around the Hydra solution as well? Yeah, so when you look at things like Mithril, Hydra, you know, these are extensions of known concepts. So like Mithril is a threshold signature idea and they construct these proof, uh, proof certificates and then when you do transactions, they're paired with proof certificates and it gives you the inclusive accountability. It's like, okay, great. It's not a new idea. It's like 10 years of talking about this stuff. We just implemented it. It's a lot of hard cryptography to implement, but once it's done, it's done. And it's more about how do you distribute the certificates and build them. Uh, Hydra is everything Lightning wanted to be when it grows up. The problem with Lightning is that it, it's not hard protocol, payment channels and state channels. The hard part is the fact that Bitcoin is not programmable. So 95% of your effort is trying to figure out how do you get a model that's not designed for this to work with this. It's almost like when they were upgrading the Hubble telescope in space. You know, after you've launched the telescope into space, it's not upgradable anymore. But yet NASA's like, well, we need to fix it. So they sent astronauts out there and they put this giant contact lens on it. And they had to figure out how to open shit that you really can only open on Earth in space. So you had this guy like basically wearing an oven mitt with a very tiny screwdriver like floating in space trying to unscrew a panel and like gradually upgrade old circuitry and, 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 and make it better without getting himself killed. 
So that's Bitcoin in a nutshell when you try to apply lightning. Well, Cardano, we're on Earth. Okay, it's programmable, meaning that we can always go and pull a module out, put a new module in and do these things. So, you know, with extended UTXO and Plutus, there's enough there that you can build rich isomorphic state channels. So basically, you can take state and assets and you can batch and bundle them together and put them into a layer two solution. And then you can use it for microtransactions. You can use it for uh, smart contracts, but then you can build modules on top of it to do specific applications like DEXs, voting, these types of things. In particular, one area I'm very interested to use Hydra in 2023 is to reuse that technology to do all the stuff we're doing right now with Catalyst and voting. You know, there we have a situation where we're running a whole blockchain to bundle all those things together, the Ormengander chain, but that was always a temporary thing. And we were trying to figure out, well, do we bring it on chain or not? Problem is you bring it on chain, it's a ton of bloat. You have millions of transactions and all this privacy toxic waste you have to put in to keep the ballots private. And that's gigabytes of data every time you hold an election. And you want to hold a lot of elections. Well, what if you could do it all off chain in a layer two network that batches and bundles, and then it creates an aggregate that you put on chain that's a small data payload, but then you can verify at any given time that those votes were counted correctly. Well, that's what Hydra does in a nutshell. And it can do it for a smart contract. It can do it for a payment. It can do it for an asset. So what we thought was really important is to treat Hydra like an applied research program. So what we did is we got a small team. We got DAP developers like Sunday Swap and others. And we said, build it with us. So as we build, you integrate and we talk back and forth and we de-risk parts of the protocol. And then we have a three, four week release cycle. So if you go to Hydra's GitHub repository, the entire release schedule's there on the project page. And you see the releases that we've done and the capabilities each release has, and we'll work our way up over a reasonable period of time to a 1.0. That's a good foundation for a DAP developer to take and integrate into their infrastructure for a lot of the off-chain stuff that they do. Now, who will run that infrastructure? Well, the way we designed it, state pool operators can and and the developers themselves can, and other people can, and it just becomes another augmentation to Cardano. And what's cool is it's a foundation for other protocols, like a tail protocol for microtransactions or a voting protocol or these types of things, which are specific case and utilities for it. And you kind of know that you get a lot of guarantees with this system. So, you know, it's slow to start because you have to do a lot of applied research, but once that research is over and done and you have a strong foundation, it's easy for people to take it and build dApps on top of it. And just another tool like Mithril that you have as you think about, you know, how do I build a uh, an ecosystem around this? Awesome. So a couple of questions. First being, how does Cardano plan to enhance privacy features? And the other part of this question is that we've had a few of our members highlight that mixes are being built on the Cardano ecosystem. And with the likes of Tornado Cash, what are your thoughts on mixes? So, you know, I've been in this business a long time and I, I remember uh, mixers in 2013 and 2014 and, uh, you know, everybody, and then the first wave of privacy coins that we got, Cloak Coin and Dark Coin, and uh, then eventually Monero came and then Zcash was a big launch, but it, it never really got a, a lot of traction. So there's two parts to privacy. One is privacy around the movement of assets and then privacy around computation. And these are very different things. So the movement of assets is where the majority of the space is focused on historically. So I sent a transaction and I want to break linkability in that so that you can't trace it back and see who sent it. And the person who receives it, you know, they have plausible deniability uh, that they have it or not. This is what a snark based system or a ring signature based system does. And 
you know, there's a lot of great security conversations and there's a lot of heavy lifting that's done. The problem with a lot of these systems is that if you make a mistake, it's hard to prove that the mistake has been remediated. For example, if, you know, you, you create a mechanism to allow people to counterfeit coins, it's hard to know if a person exploited it because you can't really get proper accounting of the entire system unless you work really hard for it. But that's being resolved and, you know, the, the next generation of these uh, these systems. Now, you can accomplish this at a protocol level or you can accomplish this at a layer two level through a mixer. The advantage at the protocol level is that you have a larger anonymity set, meaning that everybody participates. So it's very hard in practice to figure out who's doing what where. The disadvantage is that it taints every user of the coin and so you lose liquidity. Exchanges are much more hesitant to list privacy coins. The advantage at the layer two level is that you've segregated it. So only the participants in that are uh, are tainted, but everybody else is generally okay. The problem is it works in both directions. So with Tornado Cash, you could technically send it to an account that you've tainted the entire account and you've had a compliance violation because you've received you know, an asset. So it's basically a poison pill and you don't even consent to that. It's a push system. It just shows up in your wallet. That's pretty problematic. Yeah. So, uh, so that, that is something the industry is working with. And I'm very glad Coinbase is getting involved. Now, computational privacy is very different. That's where you're actually computing on something and you're keeping the state private. It's almost like homomorphic encryption in that respect. And that's very useful for mining medical records uh, without revealing, uh, revealing private medical information. Uh, a lot of data science problems. It's very useful for bank secrecy. Like, let's say I, I want to run a DEX but, and have a fair order book, but I don't want to reveal all the trades uh, so people's positions aren't leaked or these types of things. So uh, that's a different thing. And there are some technologies like ZEXE, and we created one called Kachina. Uh, which actually show how to do that. But these are still highly experimental because they're so difficult to do and they're a much harder problem in practice because there's a much broader set of things you have to worry about than transactional privacy. In both cases, having identity helps a lot because you go from a totally private system to a confidential system. There's a big difference between the two. And a totally private system, it's ubiquitously anonymous to everyone. And a confidential system, it's publicly anonymous, but there exists mechanism for certain trusted actors with your consent to unblind that. And that makes a lot of sense in normal business. You do not have privacy if you use an exchange. So why is it then that the exchange can't unblind a transaction? You've already gone through KYC and AML. They know you have the assets. They know who you are. It's not like you're getting any privacy here trading Zcash on Coinbase or something like that. Okay, so uh, I don't even know if they've listed them. So, but you know, you don't get any privacy trading Zcash on Binance. Yeah. Okay, you know, and so why why do you care? But why don't you have a confidential system? And that confidential system basically says, well, Coinbase and Zcash and Binance, these other guys can prove owners and comply with the travel rule, and they have the KYC log. But outside observers, they can't decrypt these things. They can't see these things. They can't unblind these types of things. And you can even put in uh, plausible deniability or or these types of things like, like a true zero-knowledge proof would where um, outside observers, there's not enough information to do linkability. So you're only going to convince the relevant parties that are in the escrow position. So that's an underexplored space in the privacy area. And frankly, all cryptocurrencies need to move in this direction. We cannot comply with GDPR and tra travel rule and bank secrecy and these other transnational regulations with total transparency when more and more people's lives 
get into a blockchain system. Mm -hmm. I'm not comfortable using a system where everything I've ever bought since the beginning of the system is publicly known. Would you guys be comfortable with every Amazon purchase you've ever made uh, being publicly available and everybody can see that? Silence, silence enters the room. Uh, yeah. yeah, you know, yeah. reasonably so comfortable. Say, <laughs> yeah, some people, yes. You know, uh, grandma, sure. You know, other people, maybe they don't want their hemorrhoid cream, you know, <laughs> preference being known. You know, so so you need confidentiality inside these types of systems and you need math-based guarantees behind it. So I believe that's how we get that into Cardano. And there's, the good news is there's a lot of great technology like uh, Plonk and, you know, the Halo 2. And, uh, you know, there's just tons of cool things that, have come up recently. We even contributed some. We we work. We have a whole privacy lab we've created at University of Edinburgh that studies zero knowledge uh, technology. We have great people like Markov Kolweis that we poach from Microsoft and others um, that are domain experts in this area. And we created our own start called Sonics. So we understand this technology very well, and we have a full development team that's playing around with it. It's just you have to be very careful about how you introduce this because we don't want to be in a situation where it gets Cardano blacklisted or destroys liquidity or it invites additional regulatory scrutiny or legal risks to the users of Cardano. So you have to kind of find a balancing point. So some combination of confidentiality, some combination of good snark tech. The other thing is you need upgradability. It's very important whenever you do this type of stuff that you can change your snark platform from one to another easily. Everybody in Cardano loves upgradability. It's super easy with the hard fork combinator. If you don't have the right technology, you can't actually upgrade your privacy technology uh, easily. It's a huge lift and it requires a massive amount of work and potentially trusted bootstrap and a lot of stuff. You don't want to go down that road. So we think we have a pretty good idea of what the design space looks like and what we need to do. And we'll have some announcements at the end of the year about it. Okay, that kind of actually leads me on to the next question. Regulation. We've obviously seen a lot of going on in the crypto space uh, with the kind of the downfall of Luna and, and everything else, right? And one of the big things that's coming up, we can kind of see it in lots of different kind of centralized banks around the world and their roadmaps, and that's the CBDC. Do we think uh, that the CBDC is going to kind of be a heavy hammer to stable coins and privacy-led coins in the crypto space? What's your thoughts on all of that? So... Uh, CBDCs are, they're not crypto, you, you know, they, they can run on crypto rails and do these things, but I, I, I will never in my life support a system where uh, we hand an unlimited monopoly to somebody at any moment to have total control over your entire financial autonomy and your economic access. J just as an example of what could be done, uh, let's say there's a country and I'll just say country, I won't put a name on it. And there's a civil war going on in that country between two ethnic groups. So it's entirely possible when you have a CBDC that the majority party, the one that runs the government that's oppressing the other group, could just say, you know what? We're just going to shut off all the money of everybody who's of this ethnic minority. We're just going to turn it off. Mm -hmm. They wake up, their wallets are empty. They basically, their money's gone. That's a superpower you have with the CBDC. Is oh that'll never happen? You really think we got oh, the Uyghurs in um, Western China? Pretty, pretty comfortable it is going to happen, yeah, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, you know. And then then you can start doing transaction discrimination. So hmm. they can start saying, well, if you're spending your your digital money on uh, healthy food, we'll give you a discount. If you're spending your digital money on uh, unhealthy food, like bag of sugar or something like that, yeah, we'll charge you twice as much money. 
if you are uh, of this particular group, we're just going to give you money. If you're of this group, we're just going to take money out of your account and charge you, uh, you know, a wealth tax or something like that. You, as a policymaker, have God mode. You've entered the cheat codes in, and you can completely control your entire economy, and you can do basically anything you want with your citizens and, and their money, and they have no say at all. And they have zero financial privacy. Every transaction they make is now known. Uh, and if they make any transaction at all that the regime doesn't like, like they buy a book, uh, you know, maybe they live in a communist society and they buy a book, uh, you know, Adam Smith, Wealth of Nations. Well, that's uh, that's a problematic book that you just bought there, Cheeky. Uh, I think we got a gulag you. OK, and it's forever known. So hmm. even if what you've purchased today isn't the problem, what about? Five years from now, 10 years from now, 25 years from now, standards change. You, li you live in Iraq in 1995. Yeah, I'm a Bath Party member. Yay, Saddam Hussein is the best guy ever, right? Because you want to get a job. You don't want to get gulagged, these types of things. Then suddenly what happens? Uh, uh, he gets deposed, and anyone who's a member of the Bath Party is ineligible for employment and uh, can't participate in society, and Victor's justice comes in. Oh, no, no, I wasn't part of the bath part. Well, in 1995, you had all these statements that said you did. <laughs> oh, same in Afghanistan. Yay, America. America's great. We're all fine. I love working with the Americans. We're very excited about the future of Afghanistan. I was a translator for them. Now the Taliban's back in charge. Yeah, that's not working out so well for you now, is it? Well, at the time, it thought like a good idea. <clears throat> and that's the problem with these things. Once they're recorded, if they're permanently recorded and you don't have privacy and can be used in any way, then 10 years later, your entire life could be destroyed. Um, it's just almost like the tweets. You know, mm. 10 years ago, 15 years ago, somebody tweets something. No one cares about it. And then some social justice warrior finds it, and they say, well, time to end this guy's entire career. You know, because yeah. uh, he said something 12 years ago, and it doesn't even remember. And obviously that that is an indication this person's an evil person. CBDCs are that on steroids, because it's not just speech. It's your entire economic life, your mm -hmm. ability to buy things, your ability to interface with the economy. And what they do is they give a policymaker the power to make case-by-case -case decisions, ethnic-by-ethnic -ethnic decisions on uh, you know, what, what your interface is, is going to be. So I think it's the single most dangerous innovation that we've ever seen in monetary policy. And uh, they are not cryptocurrencies. In any sense of the word and it, it, it really concerns me that the people who say you'll own nothing and be happy and are trying to get me to eat crickets uh, yeah. are the ones who are pushing the hardest for this type of stuff i don't trust these guys at all i think <laughs> i think they don't have our best interest in mind i agree i agree so charles what's your thoughts on parachains versus side chains for scaling using eutxo is it looking like parachains are worth doing on Cardano after governance? Well, you need a sidechain builder kit and you need good quorum sampling. So right now we're, we're going over a lot of different BFT protocols like OBFT and Pala and these other things and looking what is the best engine. So the key behind sidechains is if you're doing it right, you have slow, fast. So you have your base ledger, which whatever the consensus algorithm it is, and that's its speed. But once you've already established a PKI and a root of trust, there is no reason to replicate all of that machinery in your layer two, in your sidechain. What you do is you say, well, that's my source of truth and trust. I'm not going to be any better than that. So let me sample from that group a fast, high-performance protocol, like a BFT protocol, and then I can use that to maximize TPS and have fast finality inside my system. 
So the question is, how do you do the sampling? And uh, how do you make it easy to instantiate that? And then how do you build an incentive scheme that the people who run that sampled quorum get paid? So we're building a sidechain builder kit to basically answer a lot of those questions and then also make it easy for people to communicate back and forth and send assets back and forth between those sidechains. Because at the end of the day, what's likely gonna happen is when you hold ADA, if we have a rich sidechain ecosystem, when the sidechain issues a token, the people who maintain that token will be the same people who maintain Cardano, the stake pools. So when you get your staking rewards, in addition to getting ADA, you'd also get a reward on all of the sidechains that they maintain for that monetary policy. So holding ADA, you potentially get 20, 30, 40 tokens every epic, you know, in uh, in staking rewards, which is just super fucking cool. You, yeah. you get this incentive for a whole ecosystem. But the problem is you have to kind of come up with a logic for end-to-end how to launch that easily so that if I'm a sidechain builder, I don't have to do all this hard, heavy lifting again and again and again and again. Now, the ideal scenario would be the reuse of the Cardano code base, it's, uh, base itself. So basically, you modularize the code a little bit and you have the same network stack, the same way of handling ledger rules. We fully implement chimeric ledgers. So you have both accounting models, account and extended UTXO, and then you have pluggable consensus where you can plug in the BFT protocol. And then there's a sidechain bridge on both sides with Plutus code. So basically, both sides can easily communicate and you have a verified bridge. So you don't have a nomad style hack or you know these types of things. So you know that that bridge is very useful. So then you can just focus on what are the sidechains. So maybe Cornucopius could build its own sidechain because that metaverse is going to be very heavy and there's going to be a lot of bespoke stuff that they need to do. Or maybe you have a privacy sidechain that does all your private stuff, but it doesn't contaminate the main thing. So we have a real good model because a lot of the technology we built was moving in this direction with Orboros BFT, uh, with Hydra, with Mithril. Uh, you know, we, we wrote a proof-of-stake sidechains paper in 2018. So we've been thinking about this for more than four years. I mean, this is not a new concept for us. We really thought carefully about how to do that and also how to handle the quorum sampling. It's just one of those things where you have to pull all the threads together and there's dedicated teams. There's two teams in our company right now, probably more than 40 developers that are just focused on this particular problem and trying to get it done. And hopefully we'll be able to talk about it at the uh, Cardano Summit or you know shortly, uh, shortly thereafter. So it's just, you know, it's just a process. Now, um, the other side of sidechains is it's not good enough just to talk about launching them. You have to have an exit strategy. So what happens when a sidechain falls out of favor and dies off? There's over 25,000 blockchains in market right now. The vast majority are not being used, but they kind of like these forgotten realms, astral dead gods, just float around semi-conscious and yeah. you can come and visit them and they can share the wisdom of the good old days. Um, so that's a big problem. And so how do you retire a sidechain? And mm. so that's the other side of the conversation that's adding some complexity is how do you create one? How do you retire one? And also how do you create a staking mechanism where the, the tokens get distributed to the ADA holders so it creates value for them and it gives them an incentive to participate and and to collaborate and so forth. So uh, yeah, it's a 2023 thing and we're working on it and hopefully we'll have a lot more to say in a bit. So a lot has happened in the last six months within the crypto space. We've seen the collapse of Luna. We've seen Ponzi schemes like Celsius, as you mentioned earlier. Um, what do you think needs to be built to restore trust in the crypto space? Well, I think what, what we're doing with Cardano is the ultimate trust construction engine. That's why I think we're going to win and we're going to number one. Uh, you know, build a decentralized brain, build a decentralized government, make sure there's collective ownership and action and, you know, uh, have a methodical upgrade process. Don't make mistakes. 
you know, and uh, and be honest with people about how long it takes to do things and why people are doing things and also focus on the use and utility. You know, so what are we looking at? RealFi, we're looking at the developing world, economic identity, banking, the unbanked. Go do that and show that you've done it. And if you've done it, there's huge deltas in these things. It creates a lot of value. And obviously the value creation incentivizes people to keep going and doing it. So that's how you restore trust. How you take trust away is tell people one thing and do another thing. Um, focus on the short term. Look for maximizing your personal profit and the runaway after you've made it. Uh, all the rug pulls that are done. Bad software that breaks and destroys things. Poor usability. Uh, unrealistic expectation management. Having no principles. Not caring at all about decentralization. Not caring at all about inclusive accountability. Not trying to prove yourself. We say we're decentralized. Well, we're literally creating a fucking lab at a university and an open standard to measure decentralization for everybody. And we don't have control over that index. Once it's in Edinburgh's hands, they're going to do it. It might not look good for us. I think mm -hmm. it will, but it might not. And I can't stop them from publishing it. But then people know that this ecosystem cares about continuous quality improvement. They can care about continuously getting better. And you'll notice you're winning when the attacks are about personal things, not about technology and ecosystem. And the fact that the vast majority of the attacks of Cardano come from people who don't like me or they read slanderous books or they just make shit up, that, that's good for us because mm -hmm. it's telling you they can't win on the facts. They can't win on the principles. They can't win on the real stuff. You know, who who in Ethereum land is right now complaining that Ouroboros is a bad consensus algorithm? And I say, oh, so the algorithm that says you can self-custody your staking and you have liquidity and we it's just click up a button and you have it is worse than the algorithm where you have to lock your shit in. You know, only two major actors are making half of your stuff. And there's no clear line of sight of how that's going to get better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we're, we're, we're really going to have that fight. Great. And then they say the one transaction per a block. They just lie. I, I remember you know? that they one. Lie. <laughs> they lie. They I, mean, like, <laughs> I mean, I can go to Sunday right now or Wing Riders right now and do a bunch of trading. Yeah. And everybody else is doing it. So obviously that's proof is it, but they just don't, they just say it doesn't exist. It's not there. They live in a delusional world in this respect. So uh, I think we're winning. And, you know, and I think that uh, we're showing how to get it done. And that's why I testify before Congress. That's why we talk the way we talk. And that's why we have the community that we have. And you'll notice there's a lot of very intelligent, well-credentialed people in the Cardano ecosystem. There are a lot of reasonable people in the Cardano ecosystem. And then our opponents say it's a cult. I can't even tell people to upgrade their fucking node to 135.3. I mean, our stake cooperators have been with us for three years, four years. They, they're like, whoa, 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 whoa. We want to test. Yeah. Yeah, that's so much of a cult when dear leader says do something. They say, no, man, that's, that's, that's a great cult you got going on there. You, you, you know, so, so we have to get beyond this. We really do. We have to, we have mm. to get to a point where we focus on principles. We focus on utility. You know, we focus on the roadmap, the work, the vision, the mission, and then people understand it's going to take time. If we're focused on profit, we're focused on making token price go up, we're focused on rug pulls, we're focused on uh, abandoning principles for convenience, there's no reason for this space to exist. There really isn't. We should just go use JP Morgan Chase. It's regulated. 
at yeah. least you know what you're getting there. You know, if mm -hmm. you actually want something different, you have to articulate why it's different and you have to be willing and honest about the pain it's going to take to make that transition. And we've always been upfront with people in the Cardano ecosystem, which is why we've never lost faith. It's why if you look at the sentiment in Cardano, it's number one in terms of positive sentiment amongst our community when people measure it. When you look at our community, they get tattoos of our logo, you know, and unlike Luna, they're not going to, a year from now, be trying to find laser tattoo removal. You know, they, they actually, they got it because they believe in the principles. They'll never let you down. That logo represents the commitment to evidence, the commitment to peer review, the commitment to decentralization, and it endures even when the founders are dead. It will be the same 100 years from now because everybody's working towards that end. How do you beat something like that? It's a philosophy. You can't beat that. So Solana has been proposed as a blockchain for Helium's HIP70 proposal. Considering Solana's poor reliability and lack of decentralization, do you think Cardano might pursue the possibility of providing layer one blockchain for HNT? I would love to see Solana become a sidechain of Cardano. That'd be great. You know, and then they can just focus on their DAP ecosystem and do all that stuff and not have to worry about it. You know, here's what, if you actually look at all the volume on Solana, a huge amount of it has to do with the consensus overhead. And what they focused on is mass customer acquisition over running a stable network because they bet, and they were actually right, that the market right now doesn't really care too much about decentralization. They claim that they do, but it's like Facebook users claiming they care about privacy. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. You know, it's that's like the best. Saying, that's the best analogy I've heard in a long time. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's 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 like being in a relationship with someone, and she's like, "I can't believe you cheated on me." Anyway, I have to go drive to my job to go shoot some porn. <laughs> I, I mean, it's just like it's like, what are you doing? It's, it's yeah. It, this is so far beyond what you're saying. So, and you know, all the power to them. They bet right, and they they have a lot of customers and users. They spend a lot of money for that, but they're clearly not doing so well in the uh, the high performance consensus algorithm business and stability. So once we get all this stuff built out, if we can show comparable com performance on the side chains with sharded BFT that they get with Solana, make a lot of sense for them to actually come over to Cardano and then they can continue building out a great ecosystem. They'd get a lot more customers from the Cardano side and you know we'd support them with Lace and you know they can focus on their core mission. Uh, you know, that's the thing. Polygon did that with Ethereum and it's worked out really well for them. And now they've invested a lot of money in the ZK EVM and there's a lot of real cool stuff in that ecosystem. So, you know, you can't be everything to everyone. And, you know, building a high performance consensus algorithm is super hard work, especially because you have to be both a distributed systems engineer and a network engineer and a cryptographer all in one, plus the right incentive layer for all this stuff. Uh, and they have not clearly designed their network stack correctly. And there's a lot of pieces that are there and they'd be the first to admit it, which is why they're trying to correct it. And, and you know, there's demonstrations of that issue. This is why we've been so methodical about Ouroboros and input endorsers. A lot of the ideas and input endorsers we didn't come up with the last week, you know, written papers about it over the last seven years, more than a dozen papers, thousands of citations and a humongous amount of brain power spent in this and the design of the network stack and the consensus layer but we have high confidence that when we flip it on as an ecosystem it'll be just as performant but it won't crash and they now have to go and re-replicate all of the stuff we've done build an army of scientists and then realize that they probably have to do a very vicious hard fork and completely reset and restart everything in their ecosystem in order to be able to match that why not just go become a sidechain on us or, uh, you know, Ethereum or something that 
has a, a higher probability of success at scale. Mm-hmm. But of course, the Solana community is showing the, the polarization. They're going to hear this, and instead of cutting through the bullshit and saying, I'm trying to help you, they're going to say, oh, Charles is saying we're shit and we're bad. Let's let's be clear here. They've attracted a lot of customers. Mm-hmm. They've attracted a lot of DAP interest. They've attracted a lot of potential raw value. But it's unstable if the network is unstable. So why not just keep that partner and build together and then suddenly you don't ever have to worry again about stability it's there or upgradability it's there and you can just focus on customer acquisition and increasing the value of your token and these types of things like as an investor that's like music to my ears charles i mean why can't that happen right and i'm not drinking the kool-aid and believing they're actually going to do that yeah others might you know smaller chains might and uh you know solana was small just a year and a half Mm -hmm. ago so Things can get big very quickly in uh, in our ecosystem. Well, here's to hoping that many other projects, smaller projects, do decide to come over to Cardano as sidechains. I think that would be fantastic for the space. Let's move on to the next question. It's a bit of a strange one, but one that maybe you've thought about quite a bit, which is what do you think is the uh, biggest threat to the Cardano ecosystem? And have you done anything to kind of mitigate against it? We've already mitigated against most of the big threats. And after Voltaire's done, it's over. Um, there's no key man risk anymore. There's no founder effect risk anymore. The entire block production is completely decentralized. It's a self-sufficient ecosystem. The community's in control of a half billion dollar treasury. You know, uh, you can't even upgrade it without creating a whole bunch of, uh, of checks and balances along the way. And SIP 47 is formalization of that. So, uh, we survived, I think the hardest part, which was liftoff. And now that we're in orbit, you know, it's going to be up there. So I think it's less about what can kill Cardano. And I think it's more about what would prevent Cardano from becoming a world financial operating system and having billions of users. These are two entirely different things. It's entirely possible that five, 10 years from now, Cardano stays at the same size or it grows a little bit, but it becomes kind of a niche thing and niche ecosystem like the Veer is in Switzerland or, or something like that. And that's fine. And, you know, there's still a lot of value there and a great community and so forth. But we will have not achieved the grand goal, the grand mission of changing the world, you know, giving economic identity to those who don't have it uh, and so forth. But I think we've done a great job of dealing with where do you get innovation from? The university relationships are permanent and they're enduring and they continue to produce great value. You know, where do you get great code from? You know, we found a mechanism to do that. You know, how do you govern all of that? That's what the members-based open source project will do. And, you know, it'll endure and persist and the community has an incentive. Can you get DAP growth? Well, we've already demonstrated we have that. And they will continue self-serving and continue growing. So we've solved a lot of those really hard problems that uh, most people have to uh, get through. So outside of macro factors like you know, a US European Union led campaign to ban all cryptocurrencies, it's really hard to put the cat back in the bag. So now I'm much more concerned about how do I get to the next level? How do I get to 100 million users, 200 million, 500 million, a billion? That's a very different problem and it requires different protocols and it requires a lot more work to get there. So the next roadmap, then also existential things that are coming but are not quite here, like quantum computers and these types of things. And I, we worked with NIST and many other people did, and now they have post-quantum algorithms that they've just standardized and published. So it's now how do you translate those foundations to do like post-quantum VRFs and quantum-resistant signature schemes and also getting the privacy stuff to work in a post-quantum world. These are non-trivial. So there's a lot of hard work that has to be done, and that is an existential long-term threat. 
to all cryptography. So it has to get uh, it has to get resolved. But you know, the right foundations. We just approach it the same way we approach proof of stake, and over time you gradually grow into it, and then it's resolved. So I don't lose a lot of sleep. I, I think Cardano is uh, in incredibly good hands, and uh, it's really nice to be a participant in it. Uh, but we're past the period of of no return. It's uh, it's here forever. I could die tomorrow, just tomorrow. People be sad, but it's like Apple post Steve Jobs. It's actually bigger and stronger in that respect. So a question that we always like to ask Charles is, you know, what projects outside of the Cardano ecosystem do you think that you know investors, retail investors, should go and research? So Ergo is a great project because it it's doing a lot of incredible innovation in the proof of work space, which is a very ossified space um, and it's mostly ignored. So I love that. And I think that's awesome. I, I'm a big fan of what Polygon's done with the ZK EVM and this concept of layered batching. I think that's a really cool thing. I'm also a really big fan of Starkware and what Ali Bensassen has been doing with, uh, with a lot of his ideas. And I think there's some cool stuff there uh, that is ubiquitously useful to all of us. And actually, I'm very, very happy that that community is starting to standardize a lot of things, and there's a huge amount of progress in recursive snarks. Um, I think that Tezos has done some pioneering work on blockchain-based governance, and you know it's a good pedagogical chain to learn a lot from. Didn't quite get to where it needed to go, and uh, you know they're trying to get to the next level, but they they did innovate a lot in the beginning and there's a, a lot of cool interesting lessons there uh, i like runtime verification and also um, certic because they're both pioneers in smart contract verification and certification and so there's a lot of formal methods that they've come up like k framework in particular super cool piece of technology and if you're a developer highly encourage you to learn a lot about it and use it there's some cool things that you uh they can you you, you can do um then, you know, there are other things which are crypto-esque, but not quite like layer ones, like the metaverse programs and so forth. And I really love watching these metaverse things like Cornucopius and so forth uh, kind of evolve because it's, it's adding a new dimension to cryptocurrencies that we've never seen before. And it adds, uh, it, and it's something that I feel is, is going to bring the next 100 million or 200 million, 300 million people into the cryptocurrency space through GameFi. So I follow a lot of those programs very closely and, and hopefully we'll be able to participate at some point and innovate um, at some point. Uh, you know, and I still follow Bitcoin. There's still a lot of really cool and interesting people there. They never actually build anything, but there's a lot of great ideas like accumulators and all these other things that have come out of the Bitcoin space. And uh, they're, they're fun to read the papers. They're fun to talk to them. And uh, ultimately, um, you know, I admire anybody who's trying to upgrade the Hubble telescope. Anytime you have to go into space and put on a suit and put a contact lens on something floating and avoid the cosmic rays, uh, that's that's a really impressive thing. Uh, so uh, to me, it, it, it's 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 uh, like the underdog uh, for upgradability, and it's always cool whenever they manage to pull something off. So I do follow that a lot, yeah. and uh, and I think anybody should in this space. I'm also a little you know, bias because that's where I got started with the Bitcoin mm -hmm. Education Project. And I was the founding chair of the Education Committee at the Bitcoin Foundation. And I lived in that space for a long time until they, they drove me out. And they drove a lot of other people out like Roger Ver and Mike Hearn and Gavin Andresen and so forth, who had, were carried a lot of weight for that ecosystem. Mm -hmm. 
Okay, so just going back to what you were talking about earlier when you were describing Lace, you were talking about staking and how you felt that Cardano was one of the best in the world when it came to staking. And I want to just say absolutely agree with you on that. Um, we actually run stake pools not only for Cardano, but also for Harmony One. And the experience is, uh, is, is vastly different. We can categorically say that we much prefer the way that you'd go ahead and stake via Cardano in the way that you actually have full control over everything. Um, and is vastly different to many of the other kind of platforms that we see out there with lockup periods and various different things. So hats off to you for that. I do think it is actually the best in the world that I've come across personally. So wanted to just kind of say yeah well done for that and the second thing was that last year we actually had dr ben gertzel on the show and he was actually talking about the migration from ethereum over to cardano and he was also describing how it was easier to write secure code rather than insecure code using haskell versus solidity and so again you know real testament to what you guys have created over um, at cardano in terms of you know how much better it is for the entire crypto space. It takes a little bit of learning to kind of get there and get up to speed with it, but it appears to be you know, fully worth it for, for what it's worth. So um, I guess to kind of wrap this interview up, the last thing we want to kind of ask you is, is there anything you want to kind of let the audience know? Um, you know, is there anything you want them to kind of do, call to action or anything like that? Well, there is a good call to action for different demographics. So uh, the members-based organization that's being set up uh, it's only as good as the members. And so, you know, as soon as uh, it gets set up, there's going to be a call to action for people to join, take leadership positions, get in the technical and governance steering committee. If you have a lot of technical skills, I've been trying to get the Cardano Foundation, and I think we'll make a lot of progress on this to really scale up their commitment to the SIP process because we need SIP editors. We need people to be counterbalances because we write SIPs, but, you know, it's masturbation if we're writing and proving. You know, you need to have a, a checks and balances and lots of people, you know, playing devil's advocate and these types of things in order for that to be an effective process. And, you know, there are some that are materializing like uh, Catalyst is funding uh, uh, Seba from DC Spark to, to go ahead and be an editor. So there's there's there a lot of great editors that are coming, but we need more of them. You know, it's, uh, it's an underappreciated but very necessary guardrail in the ecosystem for change management of Cardano. Um, Catalyst join Catalyst, participate in Catalyst, and, and submit your ideas. We're getting so much value as an ecosystem from, uh, from Catalyst, and it, we continue to get it. In fact, many of the dApps you see today were funded by Catalyst to get started, to get past that startup phase, and they've now gone on to be very successful, like, uh, like the you know, NAMI wallet and all kinds of things. So, um, you know, th I, that's a call to action there. And then also, uh, community events. There's Rare Bloom, there's CNFT uh, Con, there's all these things that are coming on. And, you know, host an event, small event, large event, it doesn't matter, just host something, tell people about it, share it. That's the call to action there. And if you see something that you don't like, don't complain about it, talk about how do we fix it. Develop a mindset of this is your house too. Don't complain about the clothing on the floor. Don't complain about the messy kitchen, pick up a shovel and fix it. And there's, this is what TX Pipe is doing and some of these other firms are doing is that they see things that people don't like and they're creating alternatives. I mean, some people don't like writing code in Haskell, go figure. And lo and behold, they're creating like ways to transfer JavaScript and, and write programs on Cardano. So go do that. And uh, it's your ecosystem. You guys own it. I, uh, I just got it started, you know, but if a party's a good party, it's not one person speaking. It's not one person standing on a stage and you're all sitting in a chair. That's a speech. 
this is a party. So you have to go mingle, grab a drink, pour some drinks, make some drinks, get to meet people, go build things. You know, if you can play an instrument, play an instrument, you know, get, get, you know, become the life of the party in that respect. And we'll get there. Okay, well, thank you for spending so much time with us today to talk everything Cardano and to answer some of those community-based questions. We really do appreciate it, and we hopefully uh, will be able to do it again at some point in the future. Um, but until next time, have a fantastic day. Thank you so much, guys. Okay, so that was Charles Hoskinson talking everything Cardano. If you found this useful, informative, maybe even entertaining at times, hit the like button. We do appreciate that. If you happen to be new to the channel, go ahead and subscribe, tap the bell, select all notifications, and you will stay up to date with all the live streams and videos that we do here at Cheeky Crypto. Guys, until the next one, have a fantastic day.